We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, good. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Getting through the day. Great. That's excellent. So we've got a fascinating guest on today. Yeah, Uh, we have uh, Dr. Katie Atwell. Yeah, from UWA. Yes. And Katie is um, an expert in vaccination, all things vaccination, you know, childhood vaccines, um, obviously COVID now. Mm. From and, the policy side, though, yeah. not like the creation of vaccines. Yeah, she's, like, she's not a medical scientist, she's a mm. social scientist, political scientist, uh, working in the public policy space. Yeah. Um, and yeah, has a really interesting tale to tell about some of the various projects she's been involved with. Um, yeah. Looking into... What what is at play with vaccines? Why people do and don't get them, and you know what are the the factors behind that? So yeah, yeah. it's a very fascinating conversation. So we we hope you both enjoy. Uh, yeah. everyone uh, listening, enjoy the conversation that's coming up next because it is uh, very important for now. I think. Yes. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Just a quick note to let you know that we had a couple of technical issues whilst recording this episode. Um, so the first ten or twelve minutes, you'll hear a backup recording. And after that, the audio will switch to the regular microphones that we normally use, which are a little bit clearer. Um, But you should be able to hear and enjoy the conversation all the way through. And uh, for people who don't know you, do you just want to give us a bit of background about your education and, and what you're doing currently? Sure. So I've had a pretty weird history. Mm-hmm. Um, my background, I'm a political scientist and my background is actually as a scholar of ethnicity and nationalism. Uh, but as a parent and sort of, um, yeah, a younger person in my early 30s, uh, finishing my PhD, I became really passionate about the topic of immunisation. And uh, that ended up becoming my research career. So I made a big shift in my field, uh, but was able to stay defining myself and understanding myself broadly as someone who is still a political scientist. Uh, But these days I regard myself as a public policy scholar Mm. and um, that crosses over with the vaccination social science work that I do. Yeah, okay. And your PhD, you did that at Murdoch, was it? That's right, yes. And what did you do that on? Well, actually, I looked at an aspect of the Israel-Palestine conflict. So I guess the one thing you might be able to say about me is that I'm drawn to areas of social conflict. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. So, and I believe you have um, been successful in getting a DECRA award, is that right? That's right, yeah. So, um, do your listeners know what a DECRA is? I don't, so. Yeah, sure. So, a DECRA is a a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award. So, it's quite a mouthful. Um, and these are awards um, that fund a junior researcher for three years. So you get, it's a lot of money, but basically most of that is your salary. So it funds you to be a full-time researcher for three years. And if you already have an ongoing gig, which I was very fortunate to have, it hires someone to replace you for three years to do your job while you do full-time research. So I uh, put in my DECRA uh, in, let me think, early 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, put in my application and you find out at the end of that year if you get it and then it starts the next year. So uh, my topic was looking at mandatory vaccination policies that had been introduced in Australia, including mm-hmm. federal and states, Italy, France and California. So I was very fortunate that in 2019, um, although it wasn't the year I'd planned to do most of my field work, 
I was going to Europe and America anyway, so I thought, well, I'll do some field work when I'm there. And then I'll go back in 2020 and do some more. And of course, I haven't gotten a plane since. That's incredibly <laughs> lucky. Yes, it's so lucky. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, as well, because I um, I actually spent, I think, what did I work it out as? Um, two months of 2019 away from home, which is a, a lot when you've got a young family and mm. a busy kind of life back here as well. So two months in total away, not in all, one, all in one hit, but two big uh, three-week trips and then two other one-week trips. And I remember just starting to turn down other opportunities to travel at that point and just going, I'm so sick of traveling. I don't want to go anywhere for six months. Yeah. And I planned the beginning of 2020 to really not be going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but of course, <laughs> now I'm really regretting that yeah. wish. So what you're saying is that like your your wishes came true and affected everyone exactly. in the Because I'm you know, the yeah. center of the universe. <laughs> so I'm assuming you have some sort of premonition that COVID-19 was going to happen yeah. when you yeah. chose that topic. Uh, that's a really interesting point. Look, I didn't. I didn't. I'm just very fortunate at this point, I think, to be one of, you know, a few scholars in this country who was all over this stuff before it before mm. it hit. And what I find really strange and weird now is that, you know, my mum will just casually drop vaccine hesitancy into a conversation. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, you know, what I used to do was so niche. Yeah. And, uh, and now everybody's um, got expertise. And it's funny as well. I'm teaching... Mm. I don't do a lot of teaching, but I'm teaching this unit called Regulation and Governance, um, and I'm teaching it this afternoon, teaching it for six weeks, and I'll just, if I'm putting anything else out to the universe, no Delta for the next three weeks, because I do not want to teach online. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I'm I'm crawling towards the end of of that, and hopefully I'll get unscathed another year. Um, But, um, yeah, what's interesting about that is that um, I'm... I teach, you know, again, I've always brought my research into my teaching, but it's been something quite niche. So um, this week and next week, I'll be looking a little bit at the vaccination um, issue with Mm -hmm. my students. And I wonder how different it will be this year, um, how much knowledge Mm -hmm. the students will already have about this thing, Mm -hmm. which then, of course, means I've got to be even further ahead and even further kind of advanced in what I can offer them. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's going to be one of those topics now where a lot of students will at least know a little bit and go like, oh, of course they're, they're talking about this. I bet, you know, like we have to talk about this. Yeah. Kind of, yeah it's one of those topics now. Yeah. Mm. Um, why, going just back to the, the travelling that you did, why Italy, France and California? Why was it those areas? So basically from 2015 until 2018 when I was writing and submitting my application, mm. There had been a change in all of those jurisdictions and Australia. Right. So what, what it was is that it's it's too simplistic to say that they made childhood vaccination mandatory because all of the jurisdictions had a version of mandatory vaccination for kids already, but they all made it tighter in different ways, mm. whether it was removing the possibility for people to opt out or whether it was expanding the program that they had to cover more vaccines or imposing new consequences for refusal. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, and what, what have you found with um, the work you've done there so far? Yeah. <laughs> so I found lots of interesting things, and when I when I can, I'm trying to spend one or two days a week writing up that work and and you know progressing it because obviously it's very easy to get distracted with the COVID mm. stuff because it's all very that's all very time sensitive, but of course my decor is so important to me, and that's you know, the career building stuff and that's the passion stuff as well as the COVID stuff. Mm. So what have I found? Well, a few things, and some of this stuff is already, you know, in the public domain through my publications. One thing I found is that 
and this is, I'd say, a kind of generalisation I'm really starting to hammer home in the context of COVID, is that when these governments have made this uh, decision to make childhood vaccination more mandatory, which mm -hmm. is the shorthand for what I just told you, yeah. um, it's really in a context where they haven't necessarily tried other things as well as I would like them to have. Mm -hmm. And one of those things in particular is, you know, proper targeted public communications campaigns that you throw a lot of money at. And of course, this is a very hot topic now with COVID and Australia being quite slow compared to our, um, you know, counterparts overseas in getting this kind of advertising out that speaks to people, that motivates them. And then also kind of the targeted communications for specific groups. Now, I know that's not going to be enough and mandates in, in, in the childhood context and the adult context might be a reasonable policy option, but I, f I feel concerned that, that that wasn't exhaustively or even at all done in the, mm. in the jurisdictions I looked at. Instead, Italy, France and Australia did their big comms campaigns after they'd made vaccines mandatory. Now, there are good reasons to do it then as well. You should do it then as opposed to not at all, or better late than never, as they say. Yeah. But um, I would have liked to have seen that kind of investment before. Because okay. then, yeah, then it makes the, the public aware of what's about to happen and they can prepare for that kind of shift in mentality as well. Yeah, yeah and, and that's part of it. But of course, ideally, you might be able to be persuasive enough that you maybe don't need the mandate or maybe you mm. don't need to, because coercion can be problematic and it can generate reactants. It can generate the opposite of what you're looking for. And if you look, you know, to, to flash forward to COVID-19 now in this country, um, what we see really gets the kind of um, reactionaries out in their cars, for example, driving through Fremantle, is uh, the threat of mandatory vaccination. So, um, you know, it would be, it, there are reasons that it would be nice to not to have to kind of wave that tool around mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it, it's, it's certainly as well, we've seen an importation of that kind of rhetoric and discourse from the United States into our country, I think in a way that is unprecedented, mm. um, that kind of anti-government, you know, get out of my backyard sort of mentality. <laughs> you know, we, we've had that here, sure, but we've also actually really been a population that's pretty happy to be quite heavily governed, you know, from... Uh, bike helmets to you know to um, you know our compliance with with lockdown policies. We've been we're pretty well behaved. Pretty good, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> we're like um, the good kids. <laughs> yeah, we are. And, and look, you know, some of that is is a very cultural thing. Yeah. Um, you know, people say about the British that they love to queue, mm. and they tease them about that on the continent. That you know, Brit Britain's anywhere will form a queue, which which I like. You know, yeah. I can't stand the anarchy of a of a bar or something <laughs> yeah. where I'm having to just like you know make yeah. myself seen at the at the bar. So I, I like a good queue personally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you're, you're more advocating for education and persuasion rather than coercion, essentially, as far as vaccines are concerned. Well, it's just that there's an order in which you should do these things <laughs> for a lot of reasons, including, um, you know, what what is a desirable way to govern, yeah. uh, but also in terms of, I think, legitimacy and in terms of, um, you know, ethics as mm -hmm. well. And the... the populations in those places that you visited did you get to speak to members of the general public much or not from the perspective of my research so um my you know my my whole thing with my decra was that i i did my time in the trenches talking to the vaccine hesitant and vaccine refusers um mm. and i think at this point 
in this country anyway, I would not be the right person to go and talk to those communities now because I have too much of a profile of um, with everything I've done. I'm, I'm not... I'm not the kind of, you know, objective social researcher that should go and do that. So I have wonderful people who work for and with me who do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was very clear with my DECRA, particularly because I saw... So once I got a secure job at UWA in 2017, I really wanted to reinvest in myself as a political scientist and policy scholar because, like many um, early career researchers, I spent... Um, a lot of time, and for me it was nearly five years out in the wilderness between uh, getting my PhD and getting a secure academic job, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was before COVID, so my heart really goes out to um, the next generation of researchers after me. Anyway, um, you know, I spent that time that I, you know, that was when I was, in, um, you know, engaging directly with vaccine hesitant parents and, and really, you know, doing jobbing work as a, you know, as a researcher of uh, vaccination and social science and leaving my politics and policy stuff fairly far behind at that point. Mm. Uh, no regrets for doing that because it got me where I am and it got me that other skill set that's part of my, you know, the, the strings to my bow to this day. But with my DECRA, I, I really wanted to position myself and reposition myself as that as at that intersection between those two things. Yeah. And that meant that for me, I was interested in mandates as a policy and governance, you know, issue not in terms of how does the public feel about them or think about them. And, of course, I've, along the way I've done that work too. I've battled, that's been sort of side projects. But the DECRA was about talking to people in government or talking to people in civil society who had been involved or had been very close bystanders to the decisions being made and could explain to me why policy changes were made, what happened. And I have studied... Particularly in California, I have studied, because I'm writing a book on that with my um, American co-author and friend, Mark Navin, uh, but, you know, so we've gone in and looked at the, the vaccine-hesitant, resistant communities there, but still not first-hand. Um, maybe this is not a reasonable thing to say, but I feel like I know what makes those communities tick pretty well. Not so much with COVID, and so that's why we're making sure that in the Coronavax project I'm leading that we are finding out, you know, what vaccine-hesitant adults think and feel. And vaccine-hesitant for this vaccine, of course, which is a different kettle of fish as well. But if you're talking childhood vaccine, which is where I cut my teeth um, for the routine national immunisation program vaccines in Australia and the equivalent overseas, I, you know, have a pretty... And, and I review so many articles, I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same everywhere. It's yeah. safety. It's wanting to be natural. Um, it's, you know, concerns about long-term side effects. It's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. we're all kind of consuming a lot of the same information sources or versions of in our own languages. So what would you say are the, are the sort of the, the main things that you would address having spoken, you know, extensively to those communities and now also having you know, spoken to policymakers and people in charge of making the rules. What what do you think works? What doesn't work? And, and why? So there's a, quite a bit that we know from um, from the research, from the, the research field out there. Um, are you talking specifically for COVID or in general as Just well? Just vaccines in general, yeah. and then we'll move on to COVID. I yeah. Think. yeah. Well, uh, we know that people really trust their health providers. So um, certainly for kind of mainstream people, um, 
you know, they really trust their GPs or their midwives or whoever's taking care of them at that point in their lives. So those people need to be really well resourced in terms of training, in terms of information, in terms of support, but also, in and this will flash forward to COVID, also in terms of actually the governance levers you have available for people's time. So for example, this year, the Australian government has made money available for GPs to talk to people. Like, so... Um, our primary care works through the GP uh, having a kind of, I think it's called a Medicare item number or something like that. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to call it anyway. Yep. So they have this item number and they can be like, oh, you know, I put a, um, you know, marina um, in somebody or I, you know, um, had a did, did a mental health plan with somebody. So you have these items that you can bill. And so talking to people about vaccination became one of those items you could bill. Likewise, in the childhood setting, um again, around the same time that we made our policies more mandatory here, they gave GPs uh, an extra bonus that, that, that they could sort of get either for themselves or their practice, I'm not entirely sure, um, if you got someone who was overdue for their childhood vaccinations to vaccinate. So all those kinds of levers, and this is what I teach my students, all those kinds of levers are really important. So it's very easy to kind of throw platitudes at like, oh, let's educate the health workers. It's the same <laughs> as what we say about kids in school. Oh, let's, you know, let's teach kids in school, I blah, blah. Like every topic, it's like, let's educate and yeah. then something will happen. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you actually need to set up the, the choice architecture and the architecture more generally mm-hmm. to... To allow people to navigate and and do those things, they don't just happen because some someone makes an edict somewhere. You've got to design <laughs> for that. Yep. So I'm becoming increasingly interested in the way design of you know policy kind of intersects with with outcomes and behaviours. So so that would be one. You know, if we know that our health workers are really important, then they are a really important input to be looked at in all of those ways. We also know from um, sort of behaviour change literature that um, trusted messengers are really important. So, um, you know, if I'm an Aboriginal person, I need to be hearing this from someone I trust and admire and respect in my community. Um, if I'm an alternative person, I need that messaging from from that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so those sorts of things are really important as well. Um, obviously, for culturally and linguistically diverse communities, you need a lot of a lot of intervention, a lot of thought, a lot of um, outreach. Mm-hmm. So that's incredibly important as well. Uh, what else? It's about designing the systems as well so that people encounter a kind of embracing public health experience. And, and here a lot of people, and this was very common in my research, particularly in Italy, a lot of people look to the UK because they've always, ever since um, they, they used mandatory vaccination for smallpox and people rioted and it didn't go well, they've never had vaccine mandates until now mm-hmm. uh, for COVID. Um, they've never had them since. And um, But interestingly, you know, anecdotally you hear, oh, lots of people think it's it's compulsory or it's mandatory. And I think that's brilliant because what that means is that you are just doing such a good job of normalising it. And here, again, I would refer to the NHS, which of course is, you know, chronically underfunded, is not without its flaws, and I can say that because I've worked for them, um, <laughs> is, is, you know, but it's this, you know, really universal broad-reaching system where you have the opportunity to um, – we talked about this in, in an article that we wrote about Italy, me and um, a group of co-authors, um, including several UWA colleagues. We talked about this idea that um, – so um, Foucault and um, Deleuze and Guattari as well talk about this idea of 
Um, I think it still is a Guattari, actually. But anyway, I'll, um, <laughs> it's a while since I've looked at this paper. Fair but, enough. yeah, anyway, I know Foucault definitely talks about it. It's this idea of enclosures. And so your enclosures are things like schools and prisons and hospitals. And, you know, it, it all sounds very, you know, Foucault didn't think he was going to help people in the 21st century talk about vaccination governance, but uh, he did. So it's this idea of, like, when you've got these institutions, you can that's how you instill um norms and, and behaviours into people. And I've been thinking about this as well because I've been watching Chernobyl on um, the HBO mm. documentary, that pro- well, not documentary, uh, you know, series, yeah. fictionalised series, that probably everyone else watched two or three years ago and talked about then, but I'm a bit of a late <laughs> uptaker. Um, and, and I've been thinking about that then as well, of course, because obviously you need a big state to have big enclosures and to run those enclosures in ways that people... you can frequently encounter the same messages and the same kind of, um, you know, uh, internalisation of what, what mm-hmm. it means to be a good citizen and stuff like that. So the NHS is, is a way, and, and, you know, public institutions in general are ways that you can build really effective enclosures. And that's where you discipline people. And if you discipline people, and again, it's a sort of nasty word, but if you discipline people, then you don't perhaps need to mandate things mm-hmm. because you you build those really strong social norms. So in Italy, um, they would often refer to because um, what was interesting in Italy is they had a huge um, they had a huge well gosh can I digress and tell a bit of the Italy story? Yeah, yeah please do. Please. Right, so. You probably all know about Andrew Wakefield, who in 1998 (laughs) was the dodgy doctor who uh, publicised the idea in the journal The Lancet, which frankly should have known better. For Um, for several years, right? Yeah, publicised this idea that uh, vaccines, in particular the MMR vaccine, a combined vaccine, causes autism. Wakefield was later discovered to have patented uh, individual vaccines for that, um, for those. So he had a really good reason to make the MMR vaccine look bad. He was subsequently struck off and, you know, now makes his living selling dodgy expert testimony to court cases. Mm -hmm. Okay, so flash forward to 2012 um, and a lower court in Italy and I've just I'm, I'm all over this because my colleague Marco Rizzi in the law school and I have just done this forensic examination of basically what the F happened in Italy mm. and so what happened was a lower court um, in Rimini which is um, what I imagine is a little bit like perhaps the Fremantle or the Byron Bay of Italy mm-hmm. um, a, quite an alternative place anyway um a kid was vaccinated um, with MMR and went on to develop autism and the parents believed that the vaccine was the cause, mm-hmm. even though uh, by this stage, of course, the Lancet had retracted Wakefield's testimony, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, what ended up happening was, um, and, you know, Marco Rizzi and I went through all of the stages of, of how, and because Marco's Italian, thank goodness, and a, a law expert, law, mm-hmm. law academic, we, you know, he could fully wade through this with me. Uh, so I won't go into all the detail, but basically the way that expert testimony was able to influence that lower court decision was really problematic. And so the court found in favour of the family that their kid's autism had been caused by oh, no. the vaccine. Okay. You know, cue media reporting mm-hmm. in yeah. Italy. And um, and this was not the only trial in which this happened. So later, a different vaccine, which had never been linked to autism, was found by another court case in Italy to have you know, quote, unquote, caused a child's autism. Now, Marco and I have, you know, gosh, we need to do a podcast about this this article because there's so <laughs> much depth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what we were interested in, so we, we've written two papers on this. One is tracking exactly what happened in the court case and, and what, you know, what, what all of that 
meant. But the one that we actually finished first um, was one, um, and that this this other one has just been published this year in Policy Sciences, was re- really tracing, you know, so what, like so what, so what happened afterwards, and. Um, this was building on an earlier piece of work that I had come across um, as a as just as a reader, and then had met one of the authors of that work, and those guys had found basically that um, since you know they'd traced web searches in in Italian of MMR autism, and they just spiked after these case the first case in particular happened, <laughs> and so um, so knowing that. That was where the whole genesis of this started for me, meeting this guy, having read the article and then being like, oh, my God, what happened? Let's investigate. He was a He's a medical guy, so um, his name's Pierluigi Lapalco, but he's actually now, during COVID, he's not an academic anymore and he's basically like a sort of public health executive for his region of Italy. So he's moved into more of the policy and political yep. and governance area as an implementer. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway... Uh, what we did was um, we, we built on his work uh, that he'd done with his team to show those searches. And I went and spoke to bureaucrats in Italy about um, about why they didn't do any public communications before making the vaccines mandatory five years later mm-hmm. or more mandatory. Why were they not in the space where all this misinformation and disinformation was? They weren't online. They had their kind of clunky Ministry of Health website that tells you what vaccines you need, but there was no kind of rebuttal anywhere. And what what I found through this research was that it wasn't that they didn't know, it wasn't that they didn't care. They weren't really across the new media. They weren't really in the right places. They were on breakfast TV and in magazines and answering phone calls. But they and, and they didn't have the resources and they went and asked kind of executive government for more money to do stuff and it's sort of like every year everyone would go and pitch for the things they wanted and they never got picked to have their stuff done and so but you know you could see the rates falling and falling and falling and so at the same time there starts to kind of develop this narrative of well you know England could have handled this you know every time there's a problem there they put out a press release and it you know it works and it does a good job but you know I don't think that would work on the Italian people and actually you know what I think the Italian people just need to be told what to do so that's the kind of discourse growing at the center meanwhile the regions are kind of taking it to their own hands and um one of the regions actually pushed ahead with um having new mandates for um for the for the older vaccines that were already mandated but new mandates for for childcare and um nursery school entry which is very much like what our australian states have so then the regions pushed ahead and then the center was like well we'd better get on board so people might be familiar with no jab no play and that sort yes, of thing right and that's yeah. exactly what i'm alluding to yeah, so so yeah. italy's regions um did that first um or one region in particular uh emilia emilia romagna and um and then yeah the center followed. So, you know, I it's not like there was a smoking gun. Like I kind of probably went there looking for one, like, oh my God, you know, you can trace this direct line from um that, you know, dodgy decision in the, the court lower case. court. Yeah. And by the way, of course, that decision was overturned on appeal. Right. They all were. But the appeals didn't get the same media attention mm. as the as the original decisions. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's it's not that you can draw one line from one to the other, but it's more that, you know, it's just, I imagine that this is a kind of like rolling rolling stone. I think that's probably the wrong metaphor, but something that rolls mm. and gathers momentum and it's gathers hard, more things that roll with it as yeah, it rolls. And it's it, hard to stop. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, turn around. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. 
Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. So we, we might move on to COVID. Sure. Um, because I know that some of your recent work has looked at that specifically. Yeah. I just want to give listeners a bit of background into what you're doing specifically around COVID. Okay. Well, I'm doing a few things, but the main thing is leading this big project called Coronavax, uh, colon, Preparing Community and Government. And Coronavax, um, we've had sort of four, three to four stages of that funded already by different sources and we're sort of continually building, you know, okay, so what's the next thing we want to do with Coronavax? What's the next stage? Um, But ultimately, Coronavax for me was pretty much bread and butter. This is what you should be doing when you need to roll out a new vaccine. And this was me in, um, you know, like probably just after we came out of our lockdown, uh, our first lockdown here in Western Australia, so sort of I think probably April or something last year. I okay. can't remember exactly when. Yeah. Um, and one of my colleagues, um, a senior colleague who I used to work with at Murdoch, came up to me and was like, Katie, Katie, your ship's come in. Katie, your ship's come in. <laughs> and I was like, I've been freaking out because I was looking at my vaccine sort of social science counterparts in other states and they were all across, you know, talking about um, the other measures that we were doing at the time, which, of course, was social distancing, not even really masks, but social distancing and lockdowns and mm. compliance with that. And I thought, well, yeah, look, you know, this is stuff I can engage in. I do teach this. But I'm not a public health person per se, so this is not super my wheelhouse. I'm not feeling like I can contribute. And so when my colleagues said my ship had come in, it was like, oh, crap, you know, I, I, you know, I do need to contribute. And then it was sort of like, well, you know, okay, the vaccines are coming. Mm-hmm. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how, but they're coming. And I knew as well that the people that I knew from WA government in particular, Department of Health, awesome people, I knew that these were the people who would just be scrambling to firstly keep routine immunisation going, but then secondly, they'd be all embroiled in all of the other kind of lockdown-y, social distancing-y, contact tracing-y stuff that was happening. Mm -hmm. So it was like, we need to get ahead of this and we need to build an ad capacity so that when these guys are ready to turn back to the vaccines, I'm here with data going, okay, this is how we can help. So that's really how Coronavax began. And I built a team um, that included, um, in particular, uh, Associate Professor Chris Blythe, who is one of the most respected and admired um, sort of public health people in in WA. He does about a zillion things. I I reckon the guy probably doesn't (laughs) sleep. They always do. They always do. Yeah, gosh. But... um, but anyway, Chris is amazing. And um, so he was one of the key people I wanted to collaborate with from the start and then build a team of other people who, with with expertise, um, predominantly uh, within UWA and Telethon Kids, who could, um, who could do this work. And so um, we put together a, an application for a big uh, WA government grant that was about you know, future health. And it was, I think it might've even been COVID focused and we didn't get it. But by then we had the application, we had the idea, we had the concept. So then it was like, okay, let's get some more money for this. So we did. Mm-hmm. So we got uh, money from uh, West Farmers and we got money from WA Health directly. The people we'd sort of spoken to and said, we want to partner with you on this. They're like, we can actually give you some of this money. So that got us going. And then the next time there was one of those grants going, we got that too. So we've now got a team of people and what are we doing? That's probably the really important question. Um, 
So our model is qualitative research because lots of people were doing quant at the time, you know, how what percentage of people are likely to have mm-hmm. the vaccine. I did some of that work too. It's really important. But my background is qual, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, in-depth interviews, is um, being able to understand how and why people think things that they do and, and build that evidence even if you then want to go and test those things qualitatively, sorry, quantitatively, yeah, yeah. you know, I really, I, I, yeah, yeah, I love the work that gets into the guts of, yeah. of what people are thinking and feeling. So, um, so our model is that we do interviews of um, groups of twenty. We've segmented the population. Uh, sometimes we don't do the twenty interviews. We might do focus groups, or we might do things a bit differently, or we might, if it's for um, extremely vulnerable people, we might speak to their providers. Um, but predominantly, it's just looking at okay. So you know, what was your experience of the pandemic? What was your experience? Uh, you know, how do you think and feel about vaccines in general? What about flu vaccine? What about COVID? What about the communications? What about mandates? What about safety? What about follow-ups? All the things. Mm -hmm. And we've been agile because obviously we're moving in a changing policy and program setting as we go. So we've tried our best to use that to our advantage and, um, you know, put in new questions when we need to, retire questions that don't work. Um, One area that we are, you know, thankfully ahead of the game, because this is the other thing, it takes so damn long Mm. to get ethics approvals, to Mm. get work Mm -hmm. done, that although, you know, my full-timer started um, mid-last year, we didn't get out in the field till January. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, just an idea of how long it takes to to get this stuff done. And um, so, you know, we we are hoping to be ahead of the game because right now we're talking to parents um, in Western Australia, parents of kids. And then with the – because the – uh, children are yeah. get vaccinated soon. Yeah. yeah, so that we're ahead yeah. of the game there, and I think yeah. we'll be ahead of the game for the kind of outreach slash mop up. Um, where where we weren't so ahead of the game, which was a shame, was um, being ready for just your kind of gen pop vaccination. Yeah. It would have been good to have some more insights on that. But you know, we we were doing older people while older people were being vaccinated, and the really important thing for me was, um, you know, that that we would. We were still, of course, going to write up all our research and publish it because that's what we do and that's how we um, disseminate our knowledge and how we progress our, you know, careers mm-hmm. and our mm-hmm. our field. Um, but it's been t- totally different this time with, with the COVID work because, you know, you might be writing about stuff in a conversation piece or talking about it with a journo before you've published it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some some of my team still have quite a bit of discomfort about that. Um, but but for us, we were all very clear that the, the, the two groups who should be hearing about what we were doing would be the state and federal governments. Okay. And so linked into our work as well as a part of our deliberate design Two other components I'll just mention briefly. One is um, a social media study. So um, Dr. Tal Harper, a communications um, scholar, but who also actually has a background as a political scientist. So he's very um, he's very good on the project. So he is doing our social media monitoring and we feed that information into our broader um broader knowledge as well. But then all of it, so the community interviews and the social media, all gets fed back to government by another research arm, which is called Functional Dialogues. And I designed these with um, with Tal Harper and with Dr. Jordan Chilingarian, who is um, another of my public policy colleagues. And this was really um, a way of knowing that you could, it's all well and good to say, well, we've got to feed our work back to government. Mm. And, and, you, and, you know, and I do, and whenever they want to talk to me, I talk to them. But I wanted something more structured, and I thought nothing's going to motivate a team of researchers to actually get this done and make it happen and pin the government down and make sure they meet with us 
even though they we know they want to because they want to hear what we're doing. But nothing's going to motivate everybody more than this also being part of the research. Mm-hmm. So I was applying the behavioural insights knowledge that I teach my students <laughs> yeah, and that, nice. that I apply to the vaccination field to myself and my team, which, by the way, I do all the time. Like my whole <laughs> life is full of behavioural <laughs> insights yeah. in yeah. myself, in my home, in my kids. Yeah whether it's the fact that I don't have certain apps on my phone because I know that that's not good for me, all of, all of the yep. things. Anyway, so building building functional dialogues in ensured that we would be translating our findings to government regularly. But then it's this whole other arm of research that's super interesting. What do they do with what we tell them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh, no. <laughs> and what do they think, you know, what what how useful is what we're giving them and do they want us to change anything? But, yeah, where are they getting, you know, what, what what do they need? Where are they getting their information? And we're learning so much interesting stuff through speaking to them that that is um, spurring even more research projects that we want to do about data and about knowledge and non-knowledge mm-hmm. and, um, you know, connected to the vaccination space. But, you know, how do you know what you don't know? Uh, have they been pretty forthcoming uh, providing information about how they're making decisions and what they're relying on? Look, they have, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, with, 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 uh, at, at different levels of government and different, individu- different individuals with varying degrees of frankness. Um, mm. But it's, you know, I just love it. I love our functional dialogues. Um, they're so interesting and so rewarding. Um, and it's really, you know, it, it's, it's so important as well because, you know, all governments are just made up of, of individuals, of people, and, 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 and that is what an institution is. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm so humbled by the people that I mm-hmm. meet and encounter through these, through these dialogues um, and the work they're doing. And, you know, and I'm also grateful that I've got the experience and, and knowledge that I have where, I, you know, I, I was talking to government the other day having just done a focus group with um, a very... Um, you know, non-English speaking group of women who were mostly um, mostly refugees, um, not not exclusively, but many refugees and from all over the world. Um, and I just was able to sit in there and go like, oh, my God. You know, I was able to very passionately share my feeling of, oh, my God, I've come out of the ivory tower and these these people need so much. You guys really mm. have your work cut out for you. This is full on. Mm. It is going to be really full on to reach these people and to to give them the information they need to tackle the misinformation in their communities. And just my heart so much going out to these women that I'd spoken to as well and just thinking, my goodness, like, your lives are so hard and, you know, I would never want to see anybody blaming you for not Mm -hmm. vaccinating or for being afraid to vaccinate Yeah, because... It is our job, it's my job, it's government's job, it's the health professional's job, it's all of our jobs to reach these people. Yeah. And I, I think uh, what uh, my friends, I think, would probably have a talking to me aside if I didn't mention this question because I think it's one of the biggest conversations that's kind of happening around vaccines now. Um, how do you feel about the, the hesitancy and I guess like the differences in populations um, with the vaccine types oh, that yes. we've got. Like, oh. we have to mention it. Of course I know. we do. Yeah, of course we thing. do. It's um, a thing. It's like the biggest, it's like the first time ever that anyone's known names of yes. vaccines. Yeah. We have different opinions about yes. the different vaccines. Um, That's right. What, what are your thoughts about that uh, with as a conversation within our population? Yeah, well, my, my first point is that it's 
absolutely unavoidable. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely unavoidable. You know, the minute the minute that we discovered that there is a low risk, very low risk, but nevertheless a risk, particularly in younger people, and in, and in fact that's important important to say, in younger people more than in older people, mm. of um, TTS, this uh, clotting disorder, um, and, and hence ATAGI changed the advice and changed the recommendation, not to say younger people shouldn't have a tar- should sorry shouldn't have um, AstraZeneca, but to say that they should not um, that they should have Pfizer, preferably. Sorry, that was me <laughs> dropping my bottle. Right. That. That's right. um, yeah, to say that Pfizer was preferred, so we can't we can't avoid it and we can't get around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What else do you want to ask me about that? I'm happy to say more. Yeah, I, I guess it's more to do with like the, the hesitancy behind it because uh, I guess what I've been talking uh, to my friends is like it's it's the risk-benefit ratio yes. for you personally. Yes. That's the only thing that you can decide on is whether mm. the benefit of getting this ever so slightly riskier vaccine is going to like pay off yes. in the long run. Well, um, and I think an interesting case study in that would be the UK where they obviously had a bigger problem with COVID infections exactly. than we've had here. And a lot of people there have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca. They have, although they did up the age limit there as well. They did, yeah. But mm. they must have had other other vaccines yeah, they available had too. Moderna and, yeah, and also yeah. Pfizer. But obviously, a greater proportion of their population, I think, have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca and seemingly willingly have gone mm. forward and done it. Mm. So, yeah, what impact do you think the the environment yeah. has on and, and also decisions. the policy behind it as well because these yeah. they, like people are aware of these policy mm. changes mm. and it, like the messages have been a oh, bit yeah. confused so like how much uh, influence on the population yeah. has that been oh look mm. it's been enormous yeah. it's been enormous and let's be clear if 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 this hadn't happened mm. the three of us sitting around talking now would probably have all had our AstraZeneca vaccines by now yeah first and second Pretty much. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's um it's it's yeah, it's absolutely huge. And, of course, as we see in New South Wales with the Delta strain, it changes um, based, you know, the advice changes based on the risk profile of the disease in the community. And so absolutely in that setting, if you're over 18, you vaccinate with whatever you can get your hands on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is that is what the advice is. The part of it I struggle with a little bit is, well, you know, we we are not them you know, only by, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but there's that saying there, but for the grace of God go I. So that's the part I struggle with because, you know, if they had all been vaccinated with AstraZeneca before Delta came there. Um, but, you know, of course, the flip side is, well, you know, it's really, I think the, popu- the population would find it difficult to accept deaths of um, young people uh, when there was, uh, from a vaccine, if there wasn't any COVID in the community. So it's it's so hard. It's so hard. And, um, you know, not having much COVID in the community, apart from in the eastern states, but over here, not having much COVID in the community is like, you know, 90% blessing. But as, as, as far as getting the population vaccinated, it's also 10% curse mm. because we could afford to go slowly. We could afford to be cautious. Uh but then we couldn't <laughs> yeah. as well, yeah, right, well, you know, pretty much. Until, yeah. until such time as the uh, the consequences of going slowly produce other effects like mental health problems and whatnot mm. because of economic issues yes. and whatever. Until that happens, people aren't going to be motivated as much, are they? It's not even about motivation, though. It's actually about the even the risk-benefit advice from the authorities as well. Um, you know, we're... 
and this is the thing as well. So, I mean, I I, I support the decision that Atagi makes and I, pu- I support the, the reasoning in which they're doing. But at some point as well, somebody, and this this is, you know, where, where the, the broader job of executive government, the broader job of our elected officials who have to make these decisions... I think also needs to think about that other side of it as well. Mm. So the technical experts say, well, yes, you know, given the risk profile and and the risk of the disease, you know, we recommend X, Y and Z in X, Y and Z scenarios. But I don't think that that should be the whole picture. No. I mean, you know, I don't know where health economists have been in this conversation, but I would say they're probably a pretty key stakeholder and potentially the government's you know, might listen to them a bit more moving forward as we try and come out of this and mm. in weighing up those decisions. Obviously, the medical advice is very mm. clear, but there's other things to think about as well. This is it. And this yeah. is one of the things that for me is a very emerging research agenda around um, expertise, around decision-making, around health advice is, you know, I would like to know for our own country, but for others as well, what kind of advice is is taken on and listened to and, mm. and why and, and in what context yeah. and what isn't? taken into account and listened to. And, you know, again, I, and this would be a health economist question probably, but, you know, I would be very interested to know um, in, in in our country and others, you know, what what deaths from other causes, for example, might have gone up uh, because, of, because of lockdowns, mm. because of cancelled surgeries, um, you know, and not even deaths as well, but, but other comorbidities. Yeah, yeah what, what other problems have people grappled with? Yeah. Um, and it's you know, and we know that this happens. Like you fixate on one risk, and it becomes the way that you govern your societies, and it becomes the way that we individually govern our lives, and and that's that's clear. Mm. But you know, yeah, climate change is is you know potentially a, a far more pressing emergency. Um, but mm. that's and I'm you know I'm the zillionth person to say this, I know, but but it does strike me that we're collectively and individually pretty irrational in our approach to how we're thinking about risk. And none of this Mm. is to say I don't support what we've done in this country um, with our lockdowns, with our vaccination advice. I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, we're all sitting here face-to-face benefiting from that. Uh, I just, you know, as a social scientist, I will, and a a policy scholar, I'll sort of be perennially interested in these Mm -hmm. vexed questions Mm. and um, counterfactuals as well. I think there's a, there's a fascinating difference between um, I would probably categorise it as infectious diseases versus everything else because everything else kind of takes a long time and builds up gradually and then well hey it's here and you know yeah. we've kind of been living it with it for ages we've but infectious disease yeah, yes, yeah. yes yes it's that yeah. emergency status yeah. Yeah. yes yeah. really changes people's exactly. perspectives yeah. yeah so we're running a bit short on time but yeah. I, I just wanted to ask you one quick question with your public policy scholar hat on um, <laughs> vaccine passports what mm. you, what's your view on that do you mean for overseas or for internally? I, I think both, so yeah. internally mm. and overseas. Yeah. Well, for overseas, I think it's going to be a no-brainer pretty much, and I guess the question will be what do you do for people who can't be vaccinated and, in my in my um, opinion, those people shouldn't be shouldn't face any adverse costs or consequences, although from a public health perspective they still might need to be treated differently depending on what's happening where they're going and then I guess the idea that maybe if you don't want to be vaccinated well you might be footing the bill for your quarantine Mm -hmm. um, etc and using negative tests and that sort of thing Um, vaccine passports within Australia I've 
thought about this a lot because a passport is a form of mandate and, of course, I've studied mandates in other places. Mm-hmm. Other other countries are doing this as well. Um, Israel did it. They've stopped now. Um, France is doing it. Uh, the UK is doing a form of it. Um, it's sort of experimentally at this point, but they're doing it too. Uh, it's it's tricky. Um as with all of this stuff, the devil lies in the detail. So is is it going to be the decision of a business that they would like to have a vaccine passport operating for entry into their premises? Or is government going to say, much like they say to us with our scanning in app, um, you will have to now show that you're vaccinated when you scan in with this app or, or similar. Um, so all of that is really important. What's the opt-out um, going to look like or is there an opt-out? Um, one thing I will say is that, you know, drawing from our coronavax research, because um, we've written a paper on um, from fo- looking at 40 people that we'd spoken to by that point about their views on mandates, including this kind of vaccine passport model, they certainly preferred that to um, to other kinds. And I think it's because it resonated with the measures we're already used to. Mm-hmm. But in particular, the reason it, those measures are familiar to us is because it's about preventing the spread of disease. So saying to somebody things like, oh, we'll, we'll take your Centrelink away or you won't get your tax return if you don't <laughs> vaccinate, that's not a kind of direct consequence or direct relationship. Whereas saying your vaccination status is going to be the difference between the safety of the other people in this room and or not. I mm-hmm. mean, that's complicated too because you know, especially with Delta, vaccines are not going to prevent um, transmission, transmission yeah. uh, as effectively as we would like, but they do work, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. Prevent and serious illness. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. and so, so, so that can make some of the collective um, conversations challenging as well mm. because then they might be um, second-guessed or rebutted by people who don't want to be vaccinated. And as I talked about earlier, it is problematic for um, for people who – don't you know for the for the for the refusers and the holdouts? Um, any measure like this will will get them kicking out and kicking up in the streets again. Yeah. Uh, not that that's a reason not to do things, but it is something you have to be mm. aware of. Uh, so you know, I think it's yeah. Well, I guess my my answer will be it's they can be a useful strategy. The devil's in the detail. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to watch this space. Yep. And we're aware that you've got other commitments. So we really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. been lovely talking to you both. And, and it would be good to have you back on again with your colleague from the law school to talk yeah. about that, mm-hmm. that case study. Oh, we'd love to do that. Well, yeah. I tell you, the, the article is under review at the moment. In fact, we've, we're finishing the revisions this week and sending it back. So uh, depending how deathly long it takes to get published, <laughs> yeah. maybe we could come back when it's published and do a podcast at that point about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. That'd, that'd be, be great. Excellent. love to talk you through the details. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, that's <laughs> Fascinating. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And that was Dr. Katie Atwell from the University of Western Australia. There was a a lot of information to take in, I think, from that conversation. Lots of different things covered about vaccines and hesitancy and the policy surrounding it. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah. 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 we actually just had limited time with Katie today. Yes, yeah, so uh, we she had other crammed as much stuff as possible in, I think. Yeah, um, we probably could yeah. have gone on for a bit longer. Uh, oh, yeah. Probably would have if we had the time. Particularly, um, like, going into depth about, like, the, uh, the other countries and the differences between, like, um, mandates behind vaccinations as well. Because, yeah, it's a very important topic and um, I don't think a, a lot of people in Australia even realise that we do have 
mandates surrounding vaccination for kids and things like that. Yeah, it um, did come up, you know, about kids not being able to go to daycare and that sort of thing yeah. if they haven't been vaccinated. And, and even, like, daycare staff now. Um, yeah, they, exactly. A lot of companies um, mandate their staff to get vaccinated yeah. for the flu vaccine or, and those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating area. And as you heard there at the end, Katie is going to probably join us again in the future. Yes. Yeah, talk uh, about the, the Italy case, which yeah. is so interesting. Yeah, because I, like, I, I knew a little tiny bit about Italy and, and mandates behind vaccines and stuff as one of the few places in the world that does have full um, control over who gets vaccinated yeah. and what for, yeah. And, you know, it just, so it just goes to show that the, the medicine and the, and the hard science is not the full picture. You know, oh, something God. like a court decision can really throw years of research off course. Exactly. Um, and, and it's also that's also like messaging behind um, uh, important or prominent people in our society as well. You know, we're talking like celebrities and things like that. They don't, they don't yeah. know anything about how vaccines are made, but if their messages are, uh, are good and supportive of the family, it's important. Yeah. The family of the population. Of the I mean. population, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's been certain celebrities come out and say that they have cut unvaccinated people or anti-vaxxers out of their lives and they won't speak to them anymore. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's a, look, it's a vexed issue. It, it, it um, is an emotional conversation for a lot it of people. Is. Yeah, um, it really is. I'm fortunate that I've had two vaccines now. Yeah. I was just old enough to get uh, get yep. in a few weeks ago. Yep. Nice. Yeah, I am, um, I am still waiting. Um, I may have found a potential loophole for me to get a, a vaccine sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, like some of the things that, that Katie talked about really hit home in that, you know, I believe in science. I, I believe in all of the research that's done and, and all of that kind of stuff. And yet, because of the, the risk and benefit ratio, I won't be getting Astra. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's fascinating in my own mind that that's even something that I considered. Like, mm. it's crazy. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, two look, years ago, I'd have no idea about that stuff. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a topic that we could talk about for, for hours. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be from the respected kind of epidemiologists I've heard talk on it that AstraZeneca is quite good at preventing people from getting really sick yes. and ending up in hospital, but it's not great at preventing infection, so mm. people from getting the, the virus. Mm-hmm. The mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna seem to be better at preventing people from catching the virus and also from, if they do catch the virus, from them getting sick uh, and dying. So it seems like fairly logical that as time goes on, there's going to be more call for the mRNA vaccines going forward. And I think that, you know, countries are starting to gear up their production. Boosters and things are going to be more towards that. And building facilities to manufacture those under licence from the developers and all that stuff. But hands down, any vaccine is better than no vaccine. Exactly. (laughs) Like, it's ridiculous how fast we got this done. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. As a means of managing the risk and reducing people's risk of getting really sick. I mean, things like AstraZeneca have done a great job in in large populations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we we also got to remember these things are time sensitive. So we're talking about vaccine passports at the end there. Yeah. Obviously, you know, in 10 years time, a vaccine passport might be well and truly a thing of the past because we may have got to the point where the virus is so spread throughout 
the world that it's it kind of irrelevant matter. if yeah. you've got it or not, you know? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, the, these, we, you know, we've got to think about things with that in, in mind. When yeah, we're, they're, they're all temporary measures until everything calms down, Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, whereas climate change isn't. That's an, an ongoing... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, that, oh, by the way, for all of the listeners, the, the, the report that Taryn oh, yeah. um, was talking about, the big international one, the first in, inter, at this point in time... Inter, inter, yeah. It's I. PPC. IPCC. So it's IPCC, in, yeah. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yes. And it's the United Nations. Good remembering. Yeah. Um, yeah, as of now, which is the 10th of August, I think. 10th or 11th. It's the 11th, 11th today. August, the first yeah. report for that has come out. Came out it is a couple of days ago. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. trying to currently download the whole thing, but that's taking forever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, no, I've read the summary. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, Definitely worth a read and, you know. Definitely uh, worth weighing up the risks and benefit ratio for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And getting on to your local MPs yep. to and see what they're doing vac- about it. And vaccinated. And get vaccinated now yep. that it's, it is starting to open up for younger age groups, it which is. are the ones who are spreading it the most. That's so. right. We're the party animals. We like to go out. <laughs> That's it. So to anyone listening on the east coast of Australia, um, we, our thoughts are with you and we hope that... Absolutely. You're doing okay? Yeah, yeah. Lockdowns uh, are hard. And hopefully some of you might be out of a lockdown that we're in one so yep. soon. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but anyway, as usual, thanks for listening. And if people want to get in touch with us. You can uh, tweet us at health means what, and you can also email us at meaningofhealthatoutlook.com. Yeah. So please message us. We'd love to hear from everyone. Yeah. Um, if you've got any topics you want to, um, us to talk about or people to have on our podcast or, you know, want to have a friendly chat or do whatever you want, message us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening. We'll speak with you soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Craig Cumming.